You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 37, The Spanish Civil War, Part 2, The Coup of July 1936. This week, a big thank you goes out to Paul, Stephen, Daniel, and Timothy, who have chosen to support this podcast on Patreon, where they now get access to special ad-free versions of all of these episodes, plus special Patreon-only episodes released once a month. If that sounds interesting to you, head on over to historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members to find out more information. The event which would precipitate the Spanish Civil War was the failed coup launched by the military in July 1936. Calling it a failed coup seems odd when the outcome of the eventual civil war was a victory for those who had launched the coup. However, the objective of the coup was to quickly overthrow the government, not to get embroiled in a military conflict which would last for years. It only turned into a civil war because the coup both failed to overthrow the government and the government failed to suppress the coup during the critical first few days of its existence. This allowed those participating in the coup to solidify their positions and gain greater support. In retrospect, the first 48 hours of the coup would be two of the most important days of the Civil War, because it would decide who would control several areas of Spain. What would develop was a divided Spain, with many of the most important cities still under control of those loyal to the Republic, while several areas of northwestern and southern Spain would be under the control of the military, along with the entirety of Spanish Morocco. Today we will discuss these early moments of the coup and why the generals would both fail and succeed during them. But first we need to do just a quick overview of the various political groups that would participate in the Civil War, because as with all civil wars, the political component of the conflict would be incredibly important. 
This was even more important than usual on the side of the Republic, because it was made up of many different and often incompatible political philosophies which would cause innumerable problems in the years after 1936. While the Republic was most obviously supported by a diverse set of political groups, the coup would be as well, with the Falange, the Church, Carlists, and the military all having different, although largely compatible, beliefs. The Falange Española, or the Spanish Phalanx, would turn into the coup's most ardent and fanatical supporters. The group was created in October 1933 and was the group in Spain that can be most closely compared to the fascist groups in Italy and Germany. In fact, the Falange would be financially supported by Mussolini. However, there were some important differences in the two political ideologies. They were far more conservative than the other fascist parties in Europe, and, and while they had that revolutionary rhetoric, it was always grounded in a very specific view of what the result of that revolution should be, and it was a view that was really uniquely Spanish. One of the key areas that the Falange differed from all these other fascist groups was that instead of largely rejecting religion like they would, the Falange embraced it as a critical part of what it was to be Spanish. They called back to the authoritarian Catholicism of the Spanish Empire as their inspiration. Another group was the Carlist. They were far more traditional conservatives in nature, with their greatest concern being a possible Marxist takeover of Spain. Like the Falange, they saw Catholicism as a key part of the Spanish identity and a key part of what Spanish society should be. These groups, along with the military and the Catholic Church, would make up the coalition of the rebellion, and while they had their differences, they would largely unite during the early stages of the war. Later during the conflict, actions would be taken to ensure that unity was solid until the conflict was over. If unity was found within the rebellion, within the Republic the story was very different. At the core were the Republicans, those parties that strongly supported the continuation of the Republic as it had been created in 1931. These were mostly various liberal and socialist parties that had joined together during 1936 to form the Popular Front which had been victorious in the election. This was, however, a loose coalition that had just a few years earlier been defeated in 1933 due to their inability to work closely together. On top of the differences in political opinions, the growing Catalan and Basque nationalism, which had been growing in the previous decades, added another layer of friction between the various groups. There had been some changes during the early Republic to try and help with this, like the Catalan Statute, which had been passed in September 1932, but then after the electoral losses of 1933, the devolution of power down to the Catalan leaders was put on hold. Both the Basque and Catalan nationalists would continue to advocate for a new and much more all-encompassing statute of autonomy. The most populous and powerful group within the Popular Front was the PSOE, or the Spanish Socialist Party, led by Francisco Caballero. As we discussed last episode, Caballero had become quite radicalized during the 1920s and 30s, which would cause the communist press from around Europe to dub him the Spanish Lenin. The Spanish Communist Party was much smaller than the Socialists, receiving just 20% of the Cortes seats when compared to the Socialist Party. However, that support was growing rapidly. During the 1933 election, they barely registered at the national stage, but by 1936, they were an important force within the Popular Front and would be a critical part of the Republican effort during the war. Another major component of the Republic-aligned forces was provided by the very powerful and populous anarchists. 
a few items to get out of the way about the anarchists which are related to the last episode. On the first episode of this series, I used the phrase anarchist party a few times, which is a really bad word choice uh, on my part. The Confederation Nationale de Trabajo, or the National Confederation of Labor, or CNT, as I will probably refer to them from here on out, was not a political party. It was a coalition or confederation of labor unions. This is important from a phrasing perspective, and I will not make that mistake again. Another item to discuss here is one of the other things that I said in the last episode, which was that they opted to not participate in the 1934 revolutionary action started by the socialists, which led to, among other things, the Asturian Revolution. I was notified that this was a possible error, which led me to spending a good chunk of time doing some additional research, and at this point, I'm going to fully retract that statement. The reasons why I made this mistake, and the reasons why this area has become such a contentious topic, are, I think, important to discuss, both in the interest of accuracy, but also as a way of discussing the relationship between the various groups that made up the Republican side during the Spanish Civil War. From the perspective of those who supported the Republic, there were two primary political rivals in the years before 1936. There were the anti-Republican groups on the right, which would later make up the nationalist side of the Civil War, and then there was the CNT and the Spanish anarchists. By 1934, the CNT had over 1.5 million members. For comparison, the Socialist Party would get 1.8 million votes in the 1933 elections, so obviously the CNT was a force within Spanish society. The CNT and other groups on the left would at times work together, but there was always tension. Their philosophies were at the end of the day largely incompatible. Because of this, depending on the source you are looking at, you can get some very different stories for some events. Bringing it back to the specific example of the events of October 1934, after the failure of the strike and revolution, a few things would happen. In the search for answers for why the actions failed, those that had led the strike would include in that list that it was partially due to the fact that the anarchists had not participated. On the CNT side of that story, instead of wanting to set out events, they would say that they were willing participants that were prevented from participating due to the fears of the Socialist Union, the UGT. These fears were that such participation would result in greater growth of support for the CNT. The worst-case scenario for the socialist leaders was to have a successful strike and a successful revolution, only to see the Spanish anarchists gain control of the result. After that further research that I did, I'm inclined to believe that the truth is probably with the anarchists here. The socialist case is not at all helped by the fact that, in some areas where they did gain control for however brief of a window, they would result to arrests and violent actions against their political opponents, including the anarchists, in attempts to retain that control. I am certainly capable of making mistakes, and I would like to thank the person who brought this criticism to me in a very constructive way. This is also, I think, a great illustration of the disunity on the left in Spain in the months and years leading up to the Civil War, a disunity that would be plastered over with uh, initiatives like the Popular Front, and then in the early stages of the conflict that would begin in July 1936. But the differences would never really go away. There would always be this tension th that would lead to political infighting, but then also violence at some very inopportune moments. This will not be the last time that we will discuss these types of actions of left uh, against left during the course of the Civil War. 
They would make the entire situation an uneasy alliance, when in fact the only thing that probably would have brought them through the Civil War successfully was absolute trust and unity. After the Popular Front won the election in early 1936, they were faced with many challenges, and to meet those challenges, they brought their specific political beliefs and goals. So, for example, when there was conflict between the landowners on one side, who were experiencing problems trying to maintain any profit, and laborers on the other, who were often forced into brutal living conditions, the Popular Front supported the laborers. However, those within and leading the government were not necessarily radical in their views. They were gradualists, not revolutionaries. This put limits on the government's response, limits that were rejected by many of those workers who had supported the Popular Front in the election. They believed that they had supported the Popular Front and voted for them so that the Popular Front would radically alter the balance of power between themselves and the landowners. When this dramatic rebalancing did not occur, they would often take the situation into their own hands. For example, during March 1936, several estates in central Spain would be occupied by the workers, and on March 25th, 60,000 landless peasants would seize land in western Spain for their own use. There were also other worker actions throughout Spain, like strikes during the spring. In many of these cases, there was not a specific unifying demand between the groups, just a general protest about the power of workers and peasants. While these worker actions were occurring, there was also violence instigated by the Falange. During protests in Madrid in April, members of the Falange would open fire on workers, killing three. Various assassination attempts were also made, some of which were successful, like when a judge was killed after having sentenced some Falanges to 30 years in prison for murder. In response to this violence, the socialist group, the Motorizada, was created with the goal of meeting violence with violence. At the top, the socialist leaders remained divided. Caballero and others would openly call for revolution and violence, while Prieto and those who supported him warned that such actions would simply push more of Spanish centrists away from the left. These varying views of the correct response to what had at first been somewhat spontaneous violence and strikes but was soon far more organized had the effect of continuously ratcheting up the tension around Spain. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. There were also some political decisions being made by the government, especially that related to the military, which in retrospect seem very ill-advised. For example, they had a tendency to send military officers who they saw as a threat to appointments far away from the capital. This took them away from the political center of the country, but also gave them a large amount of autonomy, like when General Emilio Mola was sent to Pamplona to be military governor. This placed him in one of the core Carlist areas, where support for the military was very strong. During the summer of 1936, the violence and worker actions just continued to increase in frequency and intensity. While this amplified the violence, it also made many question the ability of the government to control anything, which sent them looking for other options. Within the military, which had been supporting the Falangists and other right-wing groups, the path towards the rebellion was already being created. Not all officers were on board as quickly as others, some would take longer to move into the mindset where open rebellion was the correct course, but the anti-communist and anti-leftist feelings of so many of the top military officers made their eventual acceptance of such an action very likely. There were, however, some within the military that would continue to pursue a different path. For example, the Union Militar Republicana Antifascista was a society within the military kept as secret as possible which supported the government and other leftist political groups. Many of the members of the UMRA were younger, with less overall power and control than some of the other leaders. It would be the assassination of one of the members of the UMRA, Lieutenant Jose Castillo Seria, by phalangist gunmen on July 12th, which would set in motion events that would later be claimed as the reason for the military revolt. After the murder of Castillo, Several socialist officers decided to strike back, and they would abduct Calvo Sotelo, a leading right-wing member of the Cortes, and he would be killed early the next morning on July 13th. This murder would later be claimed as the spark that started the military rebellion, which led to the Civil War. However, this is probably just used as justification for the actions of the military. The military coup had been in the planning stages for months, really since the Popular Front had won the elections, and by July the preparations were at a point where detailed orders were distributed which set a possible date for the coup to between July 10th and July 20th. While the exact sequence of events seems somewhat arbitrary looking back at it now, it was politically important as the situation would develop and the military tried to justify their actions to any individuals or groups who may have been on the fence about who to support. The plan as set out by General Mola was that the Army of Africa would revolt at 5 a.m. on July 17th to move to control various important cities and areas. The next day, the army in Spain would do the same. These actions were staggered because success in Africa was essentially assured. The number of men and officers participating in the revolt massively outnumbered those who would remain loyal to the republic. Then, once Morocco was under control, troops could then be transported across the Mediterranean to Andalusia. The Army of Africa was incredibly important to the overall plan because it was known to be loyal to the generals. It was not a conscript army and was instead made up of many professional soldiers, and many of the rank-and-file men were regulars or mercenary tribesmen. These were the same troops that had been used in Asturias in 1934 to put down the revolution. 
Many of the Moroccan troops were Rifian tribesmen that were led by Spanish officers. General Franco, commander of the Army of Africa, would reply to Mola's plan by saying, quote, Glory to the heroic Army of Africa, Spain above everything, except the enthusiastic greeting of those garrisons which join you and all the other comrades in the peninsula in these historic moments. Blind faith in victory, long live Spain with honor. In some areas of Africa, the military coup was met with violence, like in Kuwaita. But the resistance was quickly brushed aside, and in many areas there was almost no resistance at all. The government in Madrid was fully aware of the events of the day by late in the evening on the 17th, and they would issue a communique the next morning which downplayed the severity of the events that were happening. It would state, quote, The government states that the movement is confined to certain areas of the protectorate, and that no one, absolutely no one, on the mainland has joined this absurd venture. When action started on the mainland the next morning, the best way to describe events was mass confusion. Many of the military garrisons around Spain knew what was happening. Most of them would elect to join the coup. However, the speed and organization of their response was at times lacking. To generalize the situation, there were three main paths that the plethora of small skirmishes around Spain took in the early hours and days of the coup. If the local military garrison moved to capture strategic areas and buildings quickly, and they were successful, that success often cascaded into more success as right-wing paramilitary forces were more likely to join in. If the local military garrison hesitated in its actions or were divided about the best course of action, events often went much more poorly. This could also happen if the local workers' unions and leftist militia groups were well organized. In these cases, an advance out of barracks would often end in a quick defeat, as the paramilitary forces that were so helpful in some areas were also quite weak in others, and they were in general far more likely to join a fight which was already going well. The third path that these events could take, and which was the dominant path in some areas of Spain, was a quick and decisive victory for the Republic, the workers, or the militias, depending on who was representing them at that point. On July 18th, both the CNT and the UGT, the main anarchist and socialist unions, declared a general strike, which was announced over radio. The term general strike may seem a bit odd in this context, but it was pretty much the union's way of mobilizing the men and women available to them for action of any kind. Workers moved out into the streets all over Spain, began erecting barricades, and armed themselves with weapons that had been hidden for possible use. In some areas, this went really well. In others, they would be attacked by military and paramilitary troops. In the city of Seville, which was considered crucial by the leaders of the coup due to its position as a possible staging area for an advance on Madrid, the general strike was declared over Radio Seville, and peasants would even come into the city from the surrounding areas to assist. However, there were some disagreements between the local anarchists and communist leaders, which provided the rebels the opportunities that they took advantage of. As it became clear that the coup was spreading all over Spain, the union leaders told the government that they were ready and able to fight, but to do so, they needed more weapons. However, these requests were refused, and even as parts of Spain were lost to the Republic, leaders in Madrid refused to give weapons to the workers. During these opening hours and days of the coup, one thing became apparent. Very few of the major cities of Spain would be captured by the military, which was not an entirely unexpected result. These urban areas were the areas of greatest power for the workers, and so the fact that they were able to successfully defend the cities was understandable. 
but this did not prevent attempts. And for example, in Madrid, there was general confusion about what should happen among the military leaders. There was initially some indecision about who should be put in command, and then as soon as they made that decision, they found that they had delayed too long, and they were surrounded by workers' militias, and they were essentially confined to barracks. Even if the news of what was happening was cycling around Spain and into Madrid, there was still some level of disbelief, at least initially, among the Republican leaders. This would very quickly transition into a political crisis, and the Prime Minister would resign on the afternoon of July 19th. President Nazana would ask Diego Martinez Barrio to form a government, and the one that he put together was made up strictly of representatives from the centrist Republican parties, and there was no leftist representation. The goal was to reach out to the right and to try and come to an agreement and to achieve some level of reconciliation which would bring peace back, or at least bring it much closer to reality. Obviously, those workers and leftists who were in support of the government and who were actively fighting very quickly let their displeasure be known about this decision. Treachery is probably the word that could be used to describe it, and if I'm being incredibly generous, I would say it was incredibly foolish. In any case, it was almost completely unworkable, and the Martinez Barrio government would fall apart very quickly, and in fact it would not last a day. Azana would then reach out to Jose Garral, who would serve in the position until September. It would be under Garral's government that real action would begin to be taken, with the army officially dissolved and the order sent out to provide weapons to the workers. Even though these were official decrees from the government, there were still many challenges getting local government officials to work in concert with the workers. While there was political chaos in Madrid, there was still a problem on the rebels' side that had to be solved. The troops in Africa had to get to the mainland as quickly as possible. The plan had been for the navy to join the rebellion and to assist in making this movement a reality. However, there was a problem in making this actually happen. And while many of the naval officers were ready to join the army, the men of the lower decks were not. They were greatly assisted in their resistance by two facts. The first was that they were generally better organized to resist. There had been discussion among some of the junior officers about what to do if a rebellion occurred and if other officers wanted to join. They had also been warned very quickly about exactly what was happening. The naval ships were all well equipped with wireless signaling, and the first to receive messages were often junior communications officers. Very soon after the Moroccan garrisons had revolted, a message would be sent from Madrid from Benjamin Balboa, a telegraphist in the capital, who had intercepted information about what was happening. This would be sent out to the naval ships as quickly as possible, and because of this early information, many of the men aboard ship were well informed about what was happening and knew just as much as the officers who were leading them. The second major benefit the sailors had was that they were on ships, tight, confined spaces with very limited ability of a small number of officers to resist them when they put their mind to taking control. All of these factors together meant that very few of the naval ships would join the rebels, which meant a core part of the plan was no longer feasible. There was some despair among the rebels in Spain, and for good reason. They had to find some way to get more troops into Spain, but there were very limited options available to them. To try and gain assistance, they would reach out to friends around Europe, mainly in Germany and Italy. However, the arrival of any assistance in the form of perhaps German and Italian planes, which would be the fastest that could possibly arrive, would take time, and it was time that it did not appear the rebels in Spain would have. 